everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cracked Up, the podcast where we talk about everything that makes us feel broken. And Randy, help me out here. Yeah, we're going to talk about just how hard this life can be and what it's like to not feel okay. Today, we're joined by Terry Singletary. He's a longtime friend of mine, and he is a KSAC certified recovery coach. We're going to talk a lot about addiction and recovery today and how it's related to mental health. Terry, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, ladies. I'm looking forward to chopping it up with you guys. Yeah. Um, So let's get started. I just want to get into the certification, the KSAC. Can you explain that? Explain your role and what it is you do on a regular basis. Okay. So um, I work at an outpatient uh, facility in Westchester, New York. And um, for the last three years, I've been a a peer specialist, which is a person in recovery who is a counselor who supports uh, clients' recovery as they see it, um, because I have lived experience, because I am I'm sober myself. I just got credentialed as a, it's called KSAC, it's Credentialed Alcoholism Substance Abuse Counselor. It's really um, the nuts and bolts of counseling in this field. So it was kind of the next progression for me. And, and, And basically what that means is I am in charge of a person's recovery from a clinical standpoint. They meet with me once a week. I'll set their meetings um, here at the center and I'll support their recovery as they see. It's a little bit different than the peer because as a KSAC, the rule of thumb is not to disclose, you know, that you have history. So it's it's more of a um, a job of kind of open-ended questions where let the person kind of figure out the answer without saying, oh, I've been through this myself. The basic answer to your question is I will be responsible for setting up a person's treatment plan. And we have, we set goals and we try to achieve those goals in the time that they are here. This is a temporary program, anywhere designed from four to eight months. Um, But, you know, we do have clients who've struggled and been here for over a year or whatever, but we try to get them out within the next four to eight months, reaching all their goals. You know, listen, nowadays people can say heroin's my problem. I want to stop using heroin, but they may want to continue to smoke weed or to drink. Mm -hmm. That's their choice. Um, This is new school. It's, it's, It's called harm reduction and client centered. We're yeah. going to get into all that because that that yeah. is a, a lot to a lot. to explore. Yeah, I do think addiction is like this ever evolving field. It has to be to accommodate for where we all are at with it. Um, yes. But one thing that right off struck me, and I think it's a common theme I've seen just in my connection to addiction and coming from a family that's riddled with it, is that a lot of people working in recovery come from recovery and you hit it right on with what you were saying about your new certification. Um, I think that that showcases that you have this certain level of self-awareness and this certain level of having gone through it and healed part of yourself to be able to accommodate for that, to let someone else's story be on the stage and you're you're just there to facilitate and help them. But can we can we jump back to you and to where you came from and what your personal connection is? Yes. Yeah, so um, I grew up uh, in, in, in Westchester, Pleasantville, New York. You know, I had a regular childhood, um, real good childhood, actually. Uh, athlete, um, went to college. Um, you know, back then, you know, um, athletes didn't really do drugs, smoke weed or anything. We were, you know, talking early 80s. So. Um, and I come from a drinking community. So, you know, I uh, probably had my first drink at 12. I did have my first drink at 12. Wow. And it wasn't just one. It was as many as I could consume at that particular time. So I think that kind of set a level of how I like to party. It was always about, you know, getting as drunk as I could mm-hmm. because I was a happy drunk. So it wasn't a bad thing. I thought at least then it wasn't. Um, you know, I didn't really have any issues. It was just 
every, you know, every, yeah, it wasn't even, I don't even think it was every weekend when I was in high school, but when there was a party, football season, all that other stuff, I went to college and played football in college. And before class even started, I, I did my first line of cocaine that was introduced to me by a couple of seniors from New York. I went to school in Ohio. So, you know, there was mostly Ohio kids and there was a couple of guys I gravitated who were from New York, one from Queens, one from Manhattan. Uh, they eventually became my fraternity brothers. But I think this kind of attitude of me just wanting to try anything started to happen because I'd never even seen cocaine. Like mm -hmm. that was never even put in front of me. And the first time it was put in front of me, I decided to use it. So then, you know, in college, my first year, I started to smoke weed and that became an everyday thing for literally the next 10 years, you know, drank on the weekends. Um, I graduated in four years. So, wow. you know, there was, you know, this is just the way it was, you know, I smoked weed and I drank on the weekends. I, you know. And Terry, how often were you using cocaine at this time? You know, recreationally, you know um recreationally it, it was certainly not anything that was on a regular it was expensive right. I'm a college, college student, student. <laughs> yeah you know so that you know so it wasn't it wasn't really an issue at all I think my senior year because I had a a uh, a house father who was also one of the football coaches mm -hmm. he snorted a lot and so I my senior year towards graduation maybe I'd Maybe it was once every couple of weeks, but nothing crazy. And crack cocaine came out around that time. Okay. And there was no way I was going to try crack cocaine because the whole thing about crack cocaine was like the first time you do it, that you get addicted. So it scared me. So there was no, I didn't want to experiment with that or anything. So then I went to work at your guys' high school. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, graduated. I graduate where it all started to go south. Well, it was great until it wasn't great. So um, I had a, just a, an amazing experience working at, at Austin High School. You know, I was on the fast track to, you know, living this life of education. I was, you know, in a master's program. I started out as a hall monitor. And a few years later, I became the attendance officer in charge of discipline and life was going great. Now, mind you, I was still smoking every day and I would drink marijuana. on the weekends, marijuana, right? Because to me, marijuana was, you know, this is my thinking and this is, you know, where people get lost because the thinking is not right, is that it's, it's a natural drug. So it's okay for me. Can you tell us a little bit about what the marijuana was doing for you at this point? It, so obviously, well, not obviously, for those who have smoked, it 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 relaxed me. Or it can have the opposite effect on people. You know, I've heard a lot of people use marijuana. It actually increases their anxiety. So it's interesting that it, it calmed you down. Help, help me calm down. It put me in a state of euphoria. Okay. Um, it zoned me out. It kept me away from the thoughts of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like go home from work, just had a long day coaching, you know, 14, 15 hours, just let me chill. And also when it comes to my coaching, I felt like, like watching film at night or trying to get into my craft in a homework that it made me smarter. Because mm -hmm. I, I was, you know, I was that's, in this zone. That's right? like um, a pitfall of like yes. an artist or anyone that's yeah. doing certain type of work is like, but when I drink or when I use, it makes me more creative. It makes me more capable. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. And that that was the lie I was telling myself. Um, and, you know, and listen, you know, I think it's very important for me to say I liked getting drunk and I liked getting high. I liked it. That's why I did it. Right. It's not anything, you know, and, you know, eventually that became to wake and bake. I would, you know, take a little bong hit before going to work. Just I, you know, set my tone for the day like like a cup of coffee that right. you know that we have nowadays. So were there any days of sobriety for you at this time? And what was that? Like? Uh, I don't think so. No, <laughs> no. It's, uh, I was pretty much every day, yeah. you know, for about ten years. You know, wow. um, uh, you know, weekend. No, I didn't drink during the week. That was I tried it once on a Monday night football game. 
Tuesday, I felt like shit. I'm like, I'm uh, 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 crap. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm not. No, you can, we don't. Oh, I can curse. Okay, yeah. thanks. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, but you are like very much a functioning. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and and my disease wasn't a problem yet. It really wasn't. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, looking back, was I the best that I could be? Absolutely not. But I, at the time, I thought I was because, you know, you're on this fast track. You love what you're doing. You know, I started as a modified coach, and I'm a JV coach, and I'm a head coach, you know, all these things. You know, I go from this position to this position of of authority and, and you know, trying to help kids and trying to shape their life. I was fully invested into what I was doing. When did it become? About year eight. Now, my story is always women. So um, I met somebody. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, I had a coworker who was 10 years older than me. So mind you, I'm late twenties. Mm -hmm. um, she's from Spring Street, um, five kids with three different men. And um, she showed an interest in me. And um, that usually gets me, somebody showing an interest in me. But one day she came in with a black eye. Mm -hmm. um, she got hit by her partner. And, you know, I've always had this thing about helping others and trying to save people. And here I come to the rescue. So we started to, you know, have this little thing going on. And, you know, we would smoke weed when I wasn't coaching. Now, the weed was not, I never, you know, went to practice high. Well, not yet. But, <laughs> but at this time, you know, that was never a thing, you know, never, you know, it was always separate. My, my smoking, my drinking were separate from work, uh, except maybe a little bit of wake and bake, a little hit in the morning and go. Mm -hmm. um, but I started hanging out with her. And then eventually to fast forward the story, she one day just decided to tell me that she had uh, used heroin because she wasn't feeling well. She was kind of sick. I don't, you know, looking back, I don't, I, you know, I'm kind of thinking her motives were maybe I would give her money to get some. I don't know what it was. She told me um, that you could snort it. And then that's when my thinking, this is what I believe my years of smoking did for me. It definitely dumbed me down because this is something that never, ever crossed my mind. Heroin, are you kidding me? The minute she told me I could snort it, she could she snorted it i was like oh i've snorted cocaine mm -hmm. i've snorted ecstasy and she told me you don't want to mess with this my ego said ah, i did those other things let me try ladies when i told you i tried it for the first time i you know i got a little i didn't throw up but i felt nauseous within two weeks i was addicted and i was addicted for the next almost 20 years wow. um that's how fast it got me. it that is the ugly part of the story within a year um, because I borrowed money from teachers and from students because it went from one bag to three bags to five bags to 10 bags. Wow. And we were splitting it. And I was the sole pr provider. I was the sugar daddy. Yeah. And I couldn't keep up. You know, that's, that's, you know, what that's six, that's $700 a week. You know, six hundred something dollars is like ninety dollars for a bundle or whatever. Just while we're here, let's go back to the woman thing because you said yes. it it stems from that for you. I also yes. took note of you saying, "I always try to save people." The savior complex, yeah. Why the woman thing? What's the savior complex? And mind you, this is an ego problem. I'll say that. So, you know, I think I, I grew up with parents who were always helping others, you know, through, through church. And, you know, um, my mother was uh, the director of daycare council of Westchester. They were always doing others. My, you know, they, they took people in through the years, family members. But I think for me, it started around middle school um, when a lot of my girlfriends would come to me with their problems with my friends. Um, I, you know, because I have a, a mother and a sister, so I only have one sister and she's 10 years older than me. So I was always a friend zone kind of guy too, you know, and, you know, you, you both know growing up in Pleasantville, there's no African-American 
kids and I was the only one for a long time. And I just have always been comfortable around females. So even at a young age, I had a lot of girlfriends and they just were comfortable with me talking to me about their problem, you know, and this also, you know, and, and it, you know, the addiction thing is deep, as you know, but I think that self-esteem for me, you know, not, you know, something that fed into my disease later on, you know, once I got into recovery, I kind of figured that out, but that was the way the girls gave me attention. I would be the guy at the lunch table sitting with six girls, you know, and my friends were sitting with the guys, you know, that was who I was back then. And I think just by girls naturally just telling me whatever, you know, their, you know, their first period all from, from this guy's a jerk. It just, that's what I got used to. Wow. And I always it grew up like that, helping my friends and helping women. And as I grew older, you know, it was a catch 22 because I did enjoy it. But then sometimes I actually liked my friends, you know, and, you know, I got, I got rejected a couple of times. Like, you know, Terry, you're like a big brother, blah, blah, blah. I heard that a lot, you know, like you're my friend. I don't want to ruin our friendship. You know, all that crap I used to hear, which wasn't, you know, I mean, some of them I'm still friends with today. So they were right. And I was wrong, but that's, that's tough on my ego. It's tough on, you know, when you like somebody, it's a form of rejection. But that's just the role that I fell into and I was okay with it. And, you know, when somebody was in trouble, that's, that's just, I came to the rescue or I tried to come to the rescue, you know? And then as, as time went on, it didn't matter whether it was my guy friends or my girlfriends, if you needed my help, I would, you know, I was more concerned about you two than I was about myself. And I think the history for me is that I would pay attention to everybody else and what they were going through. And I never had a barometer for what I was going through. Wow. Um, I was going through a lot of stuff that I didn't pay attention to. So can I just jump in for a second and ask you, Terry, are you familiar with the term codependency? Does, can you see? I got a sign they codependent behind me. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your understanding of what codependency is and, and how it showed up for you. Oh, boy. So my understand my understanding for Terry, well, you know, I, I do know what codependency is. But for me, it's I fall in love with you in, an, in, a, in a day. And, um, and you are my everything. And, Aww. you know, and then, and I... And, and I will feed off of that. Um, and that will guide me and direct me into my thoughts, into my actions, into my everything. And Terry can have the most healthy friends in the world. But when it comes to romantic relationships, the sicker, the better. <laughs> the the broken the more broken the better here it is you know I think it's fair to say we can all relate to that yeah, oh my god I'm sitting here like oh <laughs> you're speaking yeah. well and no, not today not today let me <laughs> no, I know. Not today. I, yeah yeah <laughs> because I'm health I'm healthy today yeah. so I actually have the best relationship my that I've ever had in my life that's why it's lasted the longest. But I think, yeah, I have to I have to honestly look at my relation, not all of them. Of course, not all of them, but a lot of them were either younger, younger girls that maybe four or five years older, where, you know, I think now I look back at that's just where I was mentally, you know, to you know, um, I had I had a girl with mental illness, you know, that, you know, but she picked me and I just kind of went on, went, went with that. That was another thing. If you liked me, I, I just, I'm, I was good. You know, um, I think it's all that self-esteem stuff, you know, coming back, but yeah, I, I, I'm attracted to, I don't want to say completely broken, but I'm attracted to stuff. Yeah. If you have stuff then that works for me because why? Because I can now focus on your stuff yep. and I don't focus on my stuff, yeah. right. you know, and, you know, to me, and I, that goes back to that ego thing. I am, I am, you know, I am Dr. Phil 
and I don't have stuff <laughs> and I have a lot of stuff right, and right. I, I, and I wasn't paying attention because my stuff was painful and, and not from a standpoint of, of, you know, just self-esteem stuff, not feeling like I was good enough. You know, when I had a girlfriend, could I keep my girlfriend? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy because I didn't look like my friends. I wasn't the blonde haired, blue eye guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, can I keep this girl? Am I capable of keeping this girl? And I think as my years went on, my picker, it, it went down. I was looking for something or I was attracted to something that wasn't very healthy, including this last woman in Austin who was drug addicted, uh, a lot of trauma in her life, uh, uh, you know, lower, lower income, you know, living that kind of life, you know, uh, you know, craziness. She had a crackheaded partner, you know, who was deep in addiction. So yeah, it just, it just, if you look at my history from high school all the way down to the next 10 years to her, it just was a slow decline in how I was picking my, my females and becoming codependent. Right. And you talk about codependency, this codependent relationship lasted on and off for about eight years. Wow. So, and Randy, maybe you can lend some voice to this, both of you, because I'm, re I'm recognizing a whole lot of my own history and everything you're saying about relationships. Um, I think I definitely have had a history of being the, the one put together and helping and codependency is like, oh my God, so strong in my relationship history yep. for you, just because you launched off with saying like you had a good childhood, you had a great childhood. Where does it start in that situation? Wow. You know, I don't think it came from the house, you know, because my parents, 63 years married. I mean, I grew up looking at the model relationship wow. in my life. Um, my sister, you know, my sister's relationships didn't weren't so well. She, you know, she got divorced after six years, you know, but she was always a role model. I, you know, I, 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 that's a really good question, Angelica. I'm not really sure. I just think it started with, you know, with my friends and who, and who I was, I was a bigger than life personality. Um, but yet I was different than everybody. You know, so, you know, if I, now that I'm talking about it, I think because even though people love me, but I felt different, maybe when a girl showed me affection, friendship or not, that I, I maybe I just hung on to that so dearly that that's where some of the traits of this codependency came from. Because if you're paying attention to me, that's, you're showing me the attention and the love that I need. And my friends didn't treat me different. My friends taught me great, but, you know, but I think like third grade, you know, the, the black, the black jokes start happening, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing, we're doing the Africa light. And then, you know, you, I would always cringe when Niger came up because you always had one fool was like, it said the N word, okay. you know? So I, I think that there was, you know, and then my friends, my guy friends, because they, they didn't look at the, the color of my skin. So they felt it was appropriate for, for N-word jokes and black jokes. And, uh -huh. and, you know, and I just went along with that because I, you, you don't know what to do. Right. So I think all of these things kind of played into, oh my God, you're giving me attention. I, I, I have to think that that's probably where it started. Now I have my first girlfriend in my senior year and she was a neighbor about five houses up mm -hmm. and I knew her parents her older sister had had actually babysat me and her parents were so racist it was disgusting oh wow and wow. we had to hide that relationship but the first relationship I ever had and I was like you know I'm gonna marry this girl kind of thing yeah. and then I go to college and then she breaks up with me and I find out through a friend who's like, yeah, what's going on with you? And oh, she's dating a guy who just moved in. And I'm like, so I'm getting crushed, right? You know, my first real relationship, six, seven months in, I'm in college. I think we're doing this long distance thing. And then, so I, I don't, I think, I don't know if that answered the question you, or not. No, it totally did. I, I do have a follow-up though. Like, 
because I like I'm so connecting with you all the way through this and I don't look like you I am a white woman that grew up in Westchester but I grew up in a very poor family so in that way I was different than a lot of my peers um but do you feel like there was a discomfort in vulnerability and feeling that may have caused the need to escape those feelings through love, through. 100% because, you know, I look back, that's why when I was talking about if I put all my energy into my friends, all these uncomfortable feelings that I'm feeling, I don't have to feel. Right. And, you know, and there's no question now looking back on my history, that's why I turned to the substances and not wanting to feel. Because, you know, we always talk about like this, you know, being in our own heads is a bad place to be. And it definitely was for me because it wasn't, I wasn't giving positive affirmation to myself, especially when it became to relationships with girls and people that I liked. I always liked somebody and it seemed like I wasn't getting the affection back for most of my time. You know, once I got a girlfriend, you know, that was it. But the codependency was so strong because there was no other focus except that person. And then, you know, what are they doing at this point? What is, what's going on? Where are they, you know, uh, she's going to a party. What, what, she's going to a party without me. You know, I remember dating a girl and frigging stalking her at a party. Like I wasn't invited to like, Yes. You know? <laughs> oh, so no. anyway, yeah. So this is interesting. Oh, that, yeah, absolutely. So why feel? So if I get high, I don't have to feel that. If I drink, I don't have to feel that. You know, this is interesting. Your question, Angelica, was, I guess, assessing Terry's insight to where does his codependent patterns come from, right? And I think generally speaking, codependency, we'll say a relational trauma in that sense, develops in the childhood home, right? Our relationship with our parents, our initial characters are, you know, really, really young years. You know, your insight into that, you know, I think would be dependent on your, your therapy and the treatment you've done. But your experience growing up as a, you said the only black guy in your entire high school in Pleasantville? Well, till about, yeah, till about high school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I think the racial yeah. discrepancies and, and how that affects your self-worth is a whole other angle. And because that's really important and something Angelica and I both as white women have no idea what that's mm-hmm. like. There is a fundamental need for human beings to have a, a community and a belonging. It's like fresh in my mind, because when we did the EMDR training, part of exploring traumatic experiences is identifying a negative cognition that's associated with a, a you know, some kind of whatever the traumatic memory is. And one of the categories is like social connection and belonging because it it is a fundamental need for human beings to have their own community and a sense of belonging to a certain group. And if that is disrupted or violated, like it is very much so for a person of color, you know, in, in any group that's marginalized or oppressed, that can be traumatic in itself. And it's exactly what we talked about with Dr. Randall about how with addiction, much of the correction of that is to form connection. It's to feel a connection. Absolutely. I'm also curious about, you know, if there was, you mentioned some of your friends felt comfortable using the N-word and and, and saying racial jokes. Was there any awareness um, from them, these white guys or, or, or anyone else to say, hey, Terry, you are the only black person um, or person of color. What's that like for you? Was anyone even having these conversations back then? It's, it's very interesting. Nope. So, well, so no, but going yeah. to that, my other question is, were your, did you guys ever talk about it at home? Because right. your so parents yes. had so, to be aware. Yes, yeah, yes, so absolutely. Okay. So my parents were, you know, um, my father worked for Nelson Rockefeller. They were both civil rights parents, you know, went to the March on Washington in 63, the year before I was wow. born. Very aware. Taught me a whole lot of things. Uh, where did your parents grow up? So my mother grew up in the city. And my dad grew up in North Carolina. And then he eventually moved to the city when he was 18. And they met somewhere. You know, he graduated from NYU. My mother graduated from Hunter College. They moved up to Pleasantville in 1963 from Harlem. I mean, I had some rock star parents. I really did. So 
It's very interesting. That's a great question because, you know, and I have to, I started smiling, Randy, when you, you started to answer that question. This is why Randy's good at what she does. And mm -hmm. I already know that because mm -hmm. I was also, I also lived at home till 47. So you talk about the, the tightness and, and even maybe, can you be codependent to your mother? Sure. I guess you can or whatever. So, you know, so yeah, it's all, all up in me, but anyway, yeah, so I, I had, I, it's very interesting, and, and that's a really good point it brings up. So I had this strong identity of being an African-American male, mm -hmm. but in the midst of going to Pleasantville, I lost that. Wow. I lost who I was because I wanted to be white, mm -hmm. but I had parents and a family that say, be proud of the Black heritage. Yeah. So, but I lost that along the way, because this is, this was the verbatim I would got, we got, you know, so we weren't having those conversations to add, you know, with my friends, I had to draw lines in the sand, like you're too young to for the show, but people who are older will remember Roots, which was the first mini series back on an ABC back in the seventies. And it was about a slave, you know, and slaves coming to America and uh, Kunta Kinte was, uh, LeVar Burton was Kunta Kinte. Wow. And, and people used to call me Kunta Kinte or Toby, oh, wow. you know, in middle school. Right. And it was, and that was the first time I think I stood up for myself and said, nah, dead that, that's not gonna work for me. You're not calling me that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first time that I actually really stood up for myself. But I didn't, you know, but I never, you know, I had nobody to talk to about my experience. Nobody ever talked to. So there was none of that going on. I, you know, I had friends who were very respectful, most of my friends, very respectful of my parents, of me. But my friends always said, Terry, you're not black, you're white like us. Wow. And the black community would say, you sound like a white boy. Yeah. So I had, so where the hell do I fit in? Right, right. You know what I mean? So that's what was going on back then. Back then, I, I would do everything. I had enough things in my life that would distract me from or try to distract me from all that. I was an athlete, so it was always about my sports. You know, I was popular, you know, so people were always calling me. We always went out. So, you know, I think that, you know, that escape with the weekends and drinking, it, it was an escape from my reality. Sure. You know, now that I'm thinking about it right now, that that's what it was. You know, on the weekend, you know, when it's time to party, it's a, it's a, it's an escape from my reality, which was, which was good, but at, but it was also bad, you know? So, yeah, you know, that's, I think that's what was going on. An essential part of your identity was being like, shell. Like, who am I? Like, yes. who am I? I didn't feel my blackness per se until college when, and I was in a white fraternity for the most part, but there was some, some black kids with me. But there was a, a small black community at Ohio Wesleyan, okay. and they liked me. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, they actually, I'm not getting any pushback for sounding white or whatever. And I, it's not like they were my best friends, but I felt like, all right, I am black, you know, and, and it's okay, right. you know, so... Yeah. Um, that, that was a good experience for me, even though I went to a small white liberal arts school in Ohio, but then that's when I started to like, feel I'm somebody. And then I come back home. Right. But then I go to Austin. Uh, good old Austin. Austin has got the melting pot of melting pots, you know, and I now at 21, 22 years old, finally felt comfortable in my own skin, but I had a whole lot of years of stuff. Yeah. Stuff. And already that like to, a dependency. That, that led issue. to that led to more yeah. stuff, right? That led to more stuff. But the 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 foundation of stuff was already there. You know, it's it and I'm you know, it's really this conversation that we're having is just kind of bringing it like crazy back for me, you know. So <laughs> yeah, about how my thinking was back then. And I know it was all my childhood stuff that led to me losing myself completely. You know, I was who I was, but I never really knew who I was until I got sober. How did you find that? Because, you know, you you hear so many addiction stories and it's like, they tried, but it didn't work. Then they tried again, but it didn't work. What was it in your situation that got you over that that hurdle? And I know, you know, and talk 
talk about as well, like how sobriety is like a constant thing. I didn't know how to. I never tried to stop. Um, I said I got myself into this. I'll get myself out. Didn't happen. So my bottom was on April twelfth, two thousand twelve. I got a, I uh, I I had, you know, multiple arrests for driving without a license. I I violated probation, and they came to the house in the morning of April twelfth and took me to uh, um, local police station where I went straight to county jail. Um, and I was in county jail for 60 days. That's when it was like the gig is up. That's when I surrendered. That's when I um, realized that, well, first of all, my sister, I was taking care of my 87-year-old mother at the time in my childhood home. My father had already passed. Um, my sister had to come from North Carolina to take her with her because, you know, I was taking care of her. And, you know, she she's like, unless you get any help, There'll be no mom. There'll be no family. Wow. That's how bad it got. You know, it was years and years of stealing money. I was getting ready to say it, but I got fired from Austin in 1996 before you guys got there because I was borrowing money from students. I was borrowing money from teachers. In one year, my 10-year career went down the, the train because of my daily heroin use. Right. Um, and But that was just the beginning. It lasted another 18 years. So... Fast forward to 2012, that's when I decided to get help. I could not go back home. I was put in this the, the, the shelter system. And then I went to St. Vincent's outpatient program. Did you have to do a detox first at St. Vincent's? By this time, I did not need to do a detox. I you know, I had two months sober. By, by April of 12, I was doing a bundle, which is 10 bags. Heroin on a Monday to Wednesday. And mm-hmm. Thursday, I was drinking anywhere from a liter to two liters of vodka till Sunday. So my alcoholism came back in fury in the last three months. My alcoholism was never alcoholism in my opinion, but I drank alcoholically from the first time I ever drank at 12 years old, but it came back. My first love of substance became my last love. You know, I was drinking like a fish. So I went into treatment and I was there for a year. And that's when the love of recovery hit me. So I was in a shelter for five and a half months and I went to a, uh, a halfway house for nine months. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a sober house for 15 months. So my first two years of sobriety were in sober living. Wow. And it set this foundation of recovery mm-hmm. for me. So um, I was always so interested in the disease. Like, why? How did I lose myself? You know, I thought I was a party animal that ended up picking up the wrong substance and then I lost it. No, it's a mental health disease. You talked about, you were talking about the mental health earlier. It's a mental health disease. Um, I was around so many people in recovery. I just became like this recovery nerd. And I knew early on, I wanted to work in this field. I wanted to be a counselor. And I think it's important for me, for my story, it, there, there, there is God in the story and spirituality and always growing up in the church. And, um, you know, when I was in jail, a, a few things happened. Somebody handing me a Bible, somebody telling me to read this book called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And all of a sudden, when I'm looking at this, this old English that I never could understand, things started to make sense to me. Like I would read like a couple of uh, verses and I'm like, I understand what that means. So the transformation of, you know, because I prayed, I prayed to God, I'm like, help me. Cause I felt like my family had abandoned me. There were no friends left. So, and, and there was a whole bunch of Austin COs (laughs) <laughs> your, your classmates uh-huh. who were COs you talk so so uh-huh. I was so embarrassed in those two months and 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 there were a couple of inmates too by the way so, <laughs> so yeah I remember somebody who I won't name but you know we all know the family but he's like yo man where's the day room and I look back and I see him and I coached him in high school wow and wow. I'm like oh shit like anyway, Talk about but, a, a humbling. Like, humbling. <laughs> yes. There you go. That's that's what had to have happen yeah. to me. 
I needed to be humbled. So to answer that question, so then I started going to AA. Um, I had all these tremendous people, like I, one of my counselors at St. Vincent's was was one of my best friend's mothers who I grew up with. Wow. The minute I saw her, I wanted to run out of that building, but she became my angel in sobriety. And she's like, you should go to AA. And I'm like, I don't need to go to AA, I'm done. Right. But I took the suggestion. And then I went to that 12 step, those 12 step meetings. And, you know, I'm a card carrying member. I have a sponsor. I sponsor a whole bunch of guys. Recovery is my life. There's no Angelica Hester and the Hester family. There's no Randy Corrigan. There's nobody. There's no, look at this office. Like, I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I was in a shelter 10 years ago. <laughs> like, I'm living, I'm living the dream because recovery is number one in my life. Right. And I have, I suffer from a mental health disorder. So my thinking needed to change. Mm-hmm. And the only way that that could change was I had to stop putting the poison in my body. Sure. And during this time, I realized, I thought I was just a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic as well. Yeah. So I identify myself as an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic and, an, and a drug addict. Exactly. Um, but it gave me this love to try to help people. And way before I got this job, something clicked with me probably two or three years in and said, this life is no longer mine. Mm -hmm. This life is about my struggle, recovering day to day from that struggle and helping other people way before I started to get paid to do it. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a purpose because of the pain. Um, And that was pretty powerful. Whatever magic you got, you're you're using it. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, you know what? I, you know, it just, it was just from a struggle, man. And and you know, we got, I, I gotta, you know, there's there is so there is a solution to every problem, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean I'm gonna fix anything because I'm not a fixer. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned in recovery, ladies, is that I can help others but keep myself healthy. That's where I lost it in my 20s. I was spending so much time on everybody else, but I had no no way to keep myself healthy. No healthy boundaries. Right. I was drinking and I was drugging and then I lost myself. Now I have learned through the program of recovery, all of it is that I can help other people, but I know that I have to take care of me first, because if I don't take care of me first, I can't help any other people. And there's one thing that I'm not doing, and I'm not going back. I'm not going back to that life. I am not relapsing. I'm not saying I'm cured, but I know how to I know how to be effed up, but I also know how to be sober. So I'm going to do everything in my power every day to keep this seat right here. I spoke to this. He was another another recovering heroin user and I you know he had like 12 years of sobriety and and I had asked him like what's the difference between you and the guy that's still in and out of the rehabs and his synopsis of it and I I wonder how you would feel about this he said most people still hold on to their fuck it button and the fuck it button is this I had a bad day fuck it I'm gonna go use um, you know, I, I had a year of sobriety, but so-and-so broke up with me. Fuck it. I'm going to use, he goes, my, you could have a fuck it button so deep that you think you're so sober that your only fuck it is aliens coming down and landing on the planet. And then you're going to use, he goes, I don't even have a fuck it button for that. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> there's nothing. And he's dead. He's spot on. He's yeah. spot on because that's something that hit me early in recovery. Like, you know what? I didn't give a fuck. Yeah. It was all about fuck it. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to my clients, it's like, fuck it, fuck it. I got, I, it, you know, I, I got a group in 15 minutes and we're going to talk about honesty. And some of them in there are saying, fuck it last yeah. weekend. You know, <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. My fuck it button is gone. And my live life button is is running through my veins. I mean, you know, Angelica knows, man. I my life is so blessed. It is so good. But you know what? I will never forget. And I never and, and I'm in the perfect place for it. I'll never forget how bad it was. Every day I'm reminded 
if I don't do it myself, I'm talking to somebody about it, of how bad it was. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have built in forgetters. I do not forget about that pain. I do not forget what I did to my family. I do not forget about jail. I do not forget about stealing money. I do not forget about all that crap. Sure. Because if I do, then I might get the fuckets. And that is not optional. So, you know, so it's it's a day-to-day -day thing, but it's number one in my life. And, and it's 24-7 because my partner is sober as well. And, you know, and you know what, I'm, you know, knock on wood, I'm not burnt out. I'm not afraid to pick up that phone. Uh, when I know, when I know the, um, the other person is drunk on the other side, I don't like talk. I don't like talking to drunk people, but I will, because, you know, my purpose is to help. But at the same time, my purpose is also to stay healthy. And I'm aware of that. So I do all the things necessary for Terry to be able to get his medicine because I will never be able to get rid of this, this right. disease. And I don't get lost in the fact that, oh, I work here eight hours a day, 40 plus hours a week. This is not my therapy. Yeah. My therapy are meetings, talking to other alcoholics and addicts, including my sponsor every day, mm -hmm. and making sure that I get what I need to be able to do what I do. Self-care. Wow. Gotta keep that self-care. Self uh, there it is. Yeah. Self-care. Uh, amen. That's it. How long have you been sober now, Terry? 10 years. Wow. That's really impressive. So almost 11 years. So, wow. you know, it, it's kind of, it, I, I consider myself a newcomer, but I, you know, when I was doing the KSAC educational stuff, I did, I saw a lot of TED talks and these guys are like, I'm in long-term sobriety. Mm. And they only had like 11, 13, 14 years, double digits. And I'm like, wow, I guess I'm in long-term sobriety, you know, because it, it has been, you know, it's double digits now. So, oh, but I still feel like a newcomer, but I think that's important for me because I remain teachable. You know, right, I can right. learn, I need to remain teachable because I believe that God speaks through people and I can, it doesn't matter whether you have this disease or not. I can, if I'm open to hearing the message, I'll hear it. And then if I hear it from you guys, I'm stealing it you know, to help the next person, you know, and I'm not taking credit for it either, because I know there's, I know there's a power that works through us, the universe, however yeah. you want to look at yeah. it, I, you know, that's all an individual thing. I'm not, you know, I'm not this God thumper, but I'm very spiritual. I believe in the universe and the universe is a beautiful place to be when you're, when you're in a good place and when you're in a bad place, then just ask for help, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with that's you on that. And I, you know, I think that's, that's probably the driving force about wanting to do this podcast too, was there needs to be more dialogue and more, more voice to situations of like this. People are afraid to talk about the, the vulnerability factor, the, uh, you know, you saying I need to remain teachable, like just being open. You never know who's going to say what and, and spark an idea of feeling in you that will literally change your life. So yeah. I'm and you, that. that's a great point that you bring up. And, and you've heard me, you, you know, I have to be vulnerable. I have to be able to talk about what's going on with me. We have been in Angelica's living room talking about like getting couples therapy, you know, just like just <laughs> putting it out there, you know, and, 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 you know, and, but this is the help that I need in all areas of my life, my relationships, my thing, you know, and that's what I try to tell people. We need to talk. For years, I did not talk. I was silent. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and feeling safe in a community, like making sure you have the people around yourself. Yes, allow yes. you to feel safe to be yourself yes. and to have those. Discussions. And I and I'm grateful. And, and you know, God has put those people in my life. I have people that I can be I can be open and vulnerable with. But I think also when we choose to get better, we attract better, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, sure. you know, we attract yeah. better. You know, I had to do some, you know, early in recovery, I was attracted to train wrecks. You know, that <laughs> stuff came with me early in recovery. But I worked on myself. I said, I can't do this anymore. I need to focus on me. Right. And then, you know, three and a half later, um, three and a half years later of just focusing on me, I got dropped a gem. Mm -hmm. And the gem is a gem 
but she's not perfect. And she's got the same disease that I have. But guess what? I have a partner who works with me um, and works just as hard as me. And, you know, listen, sober is easy for me today. Mm-hmm. Being in a relationship is way harder than being sober. Yeah. <laughs> way harder. <laughs> way harder. Especially but with you know, your history, right? Like oh, it yeah, all stems both from of our history. Yeah. So, so doing it's, this it's is a like a lot of work. It's a consistent yeah. practice of willpower and, and, you know, being self aware. Yeah. So it, it but it, what a beautiful process it is. It really is because. You know, when you have somebody who's next to you, who's going to put in the work that you're going to put in and, you know, um, you know, with our blips and whatever, at the end of the day, communication, right? Communication is the key, but I need to communicate in all areas of my life. And that's what I do. That's what keeps me healthy. I don't hold anything in. It's, it's always about being honest, open, and willing to get better. And that's H-O-W and that's how I stay sober. That wow. is beautiful. I'm grateful for, you know what? I'm grateful for my disease yeah. because if I don't have that, if I didn't have that struggle, I don't have this life. And this life is so amazing. I'm so grateful, so wow. grateful. And, you know, and I'm grateful to, to sit down with you too. I know your sobriety is an ongoing process. It's, it's a integral part of your life. It's something that you keep working on day by day, but I do look at you as this beautiful success story and I'm proud of you. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Terry, I just want to say thank you so, so much for coming on here and, and sharing so much of your story and just being so vulnerable with us. Um, your story just really, really moved me. Um, and I'm so inspired and I just wish you the best in moving forward and Keep doing what you're doing because you are inspiring so many people. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Cracked Up. Angelica and I are very excited for future episodes where we are going to talk about a variety of issues, mental health related, addiction, recovery, childhood trauma. We'd love to hear from you guys. If you have any feedback, any requests on topics you want to hear or learn about, please find me at Randy Mental Health on Instagram. My handle is Randy spelled R-A-N-D-I underscore mental health underscore. Angelica, where can everyone find you? You can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jella Hester. That's Jella, G-E-L-L-A. No space, Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. Thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. This podcast is presented solely for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for any type of medical advice.